Universal Orlando Pass holders love this place. When we fly into the Forbidden Forest, we know all the magical creatures. We know this coming Mardi Gras is getting spicy with all kinds of international flavor. And when the new Coaster hits 70 miles per hour this summer, my family's gonna scream. And I'll watch them right here from this churro stand. We don't hide our passion, we own it. Get three months free on any two-part pass. Purchased by March 31st, blockout dates and restrictions apply. Visit UniversalOrlando.com for details and safety guidelines. Paxton Quigley is rolling out the green carpet, talking to the creme de la creme of innovators and influencers who are shaping the world of cannabis and culture. Welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. Well, hello and welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. And folks, we are going high again. Yep, we're back in outer space. I seem to be going to outer space quite a lot recently, uh, but it's, I'm having fun doing it, that's for sure. And it seems that outer space is getting crowded these days as, as various countries are sending up probes that are circling the planet Mars. And just last week, the United Arab Emirates, they sent up a probe that they called HOPE. And it was a probe that entered Mars orbit and it sent back its first shots of the red planet from around 15,000 miles away. And I gotta tell you, it looks like a really pretty planet. And then I read that China did the same last week, but it will wait a few months before sending a, a lander and a rover to Mars surface. You know, believe it or not, I think it might get crowded around Mars. There, there are six other spacecraft that are already operating Mars. There, there are three from the United States, there are two from Europe, and there's one from India. And on Thursday, February 18th, if all goes well, the United States will attempt to land, not orbit, land NASA's Perseverance rover. And where is it going? Yep, it's going to Mars, which will be able to watch live on TV. So all of you, you know, you'll be able to see it happen. And, and I hope it lands, that's for sure. That would be terrible. The rover will explore um, a crater that's called Jezero. It's supposedly, they say, the site of an ancient lake that existed 3.9 billion years ago. And it's also going to search for microfossils in the rocks and the soil. And fortunately with us today is journalist and author David W. Brown, who has a brand new book just by chance uh, that's called The Mission a true story. And it looks at the political machinations and the financial issues involved in space research. And I'm telling you, after reading his book, it's a story about American scientists and what they have gone through for 20 years. Can you imagine that 20 years in order to mount a mission to Europa? And for those of you who don't know, Europa, Europa, ocean moon of Jupiter. And also, we're lucky that David W. Brown will also talk about the upcoming historical Mars landing. David W. Brown, welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. Thank you so How much for today? having me. Doing oh, very well. Good, good. David, your book, The Mission, A True Story, it reads like a novel. Yet I understand that it's, it, it's not a novel because you tell 
a factual story. So please explain how you came to write the mission and why you wrote it as, I guess what you would call narrative nonfiction. Really interesting way of writing. It's, uh, well, I came to the story uh, uh, about eight years ago um, as a, I mean, as a storyteller myself, you're always on the lookout for um, high stakes um, tales, um, stories with uh, interesting characters that are, and, um, and, and sort of compelling, uh, compelling personal narratives. Um, writing a book about space is, is always a challenge because a lot of readers just aren't familiar with it, right? You don't wanna, you don't wanna pile on astrophysics and astrobiology and, and geomorphology and all sorts of sciences that few of us have heard of um, outside of the actual scientists themselves. So in writing the story, I decided uh, to, use, to use that creative nonfiction storytelling style, which, which is bringing in elements of poetry, bringing in elements of fiction in order to tell a nonfiction story. Um, the story of the mission, um, and forgive me if I'm, if I'm doing a monologue here. That's um, okay. I like monologues. <laughs> oh, the, uh, the, so the story of the mission is about a small team of scientists and engineers who spent really about 20 years trying to convince NASA to fly a spacecraft to Europa, which is Jupiter's ocean moon. And uh, Europa matters because it has a liquid saltwater ocean. It's about the size of our moon, but there's three times more water on Europa than there is on planet Earth. Um, uh, as a result of that, of course, it, it means that it's probably the most likely place in the solar system beyond Earth to have life, and not just single-celled organisms, but, it, but conceivably complex life. So maybe, maybe fish, uh, maybe sea monsters. And, and the story itself sort of reveals the inside turmoil at NASA to get this mission going. And you asked what, you know, why, why did I write this book? Um, because if there is complex life on another world, um, that would have implications for every, you know, man, woman, and child on the planet. It would have implications for science. Obviously, bio, the biology textbooks would have to be rewritten. It would have implications for religion because this would be a genesis on another world. This would be a second book of Genesis that one would write. And of course, philosophy itself, because you're asking the question, or you're answering the question, are we alone? Where did we come from? How did this all begin? Um, so as a storyteller, those are, those are irresistible uh, ingredients for, for, a, uh, for a story. Now, I just wanted to ask you, were there some of the people <clears throat> that you interviewed thought that perhaps there was real life there not not human life but uh, something like humanoids did anyone ever say anything to you about that the uh, the general idea is um all right so in order to for life to take hold on another world you need three things you need water um which obviously europa has um in spades like i said three times more than on the planet earth and just to be clear not like not like some weird scientist definition of water, green alien goo, but but liquid salt water, just like in our ocean. You could take a cup and plunge it in the water and drink it, and it would be very unhealthy for you. But your body would know what to do with it, right? Could so you, you float in it? Well, let's say when an astronaut goes there, do you think he or she will be able to float on it, in it? Well, uh, I mean, so there are plans, you know, long-term plans, like like hundred-year plans for things like submarines, right? Because there is an ice shell separating space and that ocean. 
But it, once you get through that ice, yes, it, it, things would swim in there just mm -hmm. as they swim in our ocean. Um, mm -hmm. Another thing you need for life are organics. So that's like carbon, hydrogen, compounds that contain carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's pretty common in the solar system, but that combined with, with water. And you need one more thing. You need chemical energy. So Europa's ocean exists beneath a 15-kilometer ice shell. It's really thick. There's like the, the constant. What's that in miles? Do you, can you make that into miles? Let's just, too hard? <laughs> let's just say, because it's thicker and thinner in different places, let's just say 10 miles, and that'll be safe. Wow. And, okay. and somebody can go to Wikipedia and check my work later. Um, <laughs> I, I, we won't. Yeah, yeah. Just trust me. Yeah, it's 10 miles. Actually, nobody knows. So you know what? I'm just as right as anyone else. Okay. Oh, that's not true. But 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 the idea is um because there is an ice shell that's so thick, no sunlight is getting into that ocean. So you're not getting things like photosynthesis, right? So so the sorts of things that our plants would get or much of you know the the, the upper the upper portion of the ocean would get. But at the bottom of that ocean, water touches rock. And um, that's when you get interesting chemistry happening, right? Water touching rock, things are going to happen. Plus, it's hot in those rocks, right? In those crevices, water uh -huh. goes in there, water comes back out, having been changed in some way. Likewise, there might be hydrothermal vents down there, which is a crazy sounding term. But what that means is basically geysers on the bottom of the ocean. We have Ooh. them on our planet too, uh -huh. and life teams there. So, so in all, to answer your question, do scientists think, you know, have they said there's life there? A lot of them are absolutely convinced of it. I mean, just as 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 much as you're convinced that tomorrow the sun will again rise. Um, is that question definitively answered? No. Will will we see the answer to that question in our lifetime? Yes. Now, when do you think there will be uh, a rover that will land on Mars? I mean, this project seems to have been gone, going on and on and on, and you say like, 20 years or something like that. I mean, is it finally going to happen next year or in the next five years? For, for Europa? So, yes. Yes. So, so the, 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 the story that I tell is the 20-year odyssey just for NASA to say, yes, we're going to do it, which is the hard part of any mission. There's a saying in, in, in uh, aerospace engineering that you know, flying a spacecraft 3 billion miles, that's easy. But getting it that first inch off the launch pad, that's hard. And so my book is about getting it to that, getting it to the launch pad. The spacecraft itself is now being built um, at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is NASA's research and development center in California, and at the Applied Physics Laboratory in, in Maryland, which uh, APL belongs to the, the Johns Hopkins University. The spacecraft itself will launch um, in November 2024. They, they just got their official launch like last week, it's, it's pretty thrilling for really? the team right now. They are, cause it's been, <laughs> you know, if you've been doing this since the early nineties to know, you know, to first of all, to be able to put your hand on hardware is a moving experience, but, but to know it's definitely going to launch at this point when they've had so many dashed hopes along the way, it's, 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 quite moving every time I talk to them. But um, so it'll launch in 2024. There's a long cruise phase, six years to get to Jupiter. Um, six years. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so they better not have somebody who's like 65 years old on that. So, so on that, that you know, 
<laughs> you were exactly correct. And one of the interesting things that these teams have to think about. So one of the things that I find inspiring about the sorts of people who do this type of science, we live in a society, and, and I'm just as guilty of this as anyone. Like we all want immediate gratification. Like when I was a kid, when I, when I was, I'm, I'm being generous to myself. When I was an adult, if you wanted to watch, you know, a TV show, you had to wait a week for the next episode to come out, right? And then you had to wait right. like during the summer for the next season to be filmed. And now we just want to go to Netflix and we want to see the whole thing tonight, you know, 40 episodes. Right. So Stay up so all night. I've done it. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. I might actually do it tonight. So so we live in a, in a, in a world of immediate gratification and, and that's been a, enabled by technology and just culture in general. If you go into planetary science, you go into, you're going into a field where not only will you dedicate your entire life, your entire career, not to getting an answer to a question, but to just enabling the next generation to possibly answer it. And you might, you might spend 40 years trying to do something and never get it in the end. In the end, you don't, you know, you don't get your space mission. Just nothing happens because it's a big solar system. Everybody sort of specializes in a different thing. And NASA only has you know, one half of 1% of the federal budget. They have no money at all. So we don't go everywhere. So one of the cool things about, uh, about the people who do this, and that's one of the stories I, I, I hope that I conveyed in this, in this work is that um, you, you've got to, you know, you've got to have sort of a, a, a sense of yourself and uh, that the work that you're doing is bigger than yourself, knowing that you know, a lifetime's efforts will culminate in you never knowing the answer to a question, but one day somebody might, and that's good enough. And so when they build these teams, because these are such long-term endeavors, um, they don't build them like with just like the senior members of the field, right? It's not just the graybeards as they call them. It's, you build, you, you might have a, a guy who's, or man or woman who's, you know, 60 years old, who's in charge, but that person also makes sure he or she has a deputy who is, you know, 30, just, you know, fresh out of graduate school. And, and you're constantly sort of recycling or, or bringing in young blood because, you know, by the time this mission is returning data, so Europa Clipper, which is what my book's about, won't be returning data until, you know, 2030, say, um, which means, you know, you've got to have someone who is now reaching that middle stage of their career in 2030 to actually do the hard work that you enabled them to do. So yeah, it's, it's, they're constantly on the lookout for young people to take over because they know, you know, I might be dead by then and, and right. someone needs to know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Okay, now let's turn to our attention now to Jupiter. What makes Jupiter's Europa such an important moon? Well, like I said, the, 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 the notion of having that ocean um, is, well, it was it was it was a transformative moment in space exploration before before the ocean at Europa was discovered. Um, there was no such thing as an ocean world. There was only one ocean world, and that was Earth. But now it's an entire class of object because what happened um, in the in the 90s, actually, it's like 1999, 2000, um, the spacecraft Galileo, which was orbiting Jupiter and was encountering Europa. Um, it realized that Europa, and I'm simplifying this, but the, the details aren't super important. It realized that Europa had, an had a magnetic field, which was super weird because Europa is way too small for that. And it, the, the, the physics just didn't make sense. 
And what scientists hypothesized was Jupiter has an enormous magnetic field. So maybe Jupiter's magnetic field was inducing one in, Jup in Europa. Now, what does that mean? When you go to the metal, when you go through the metal detector at an airport, the detector is not detecting metal. What it's doing, that machine is inducing a magnetic field in you. It's basically hitting you with a magnetic field. And if you have metal in your pocket, that metal sort of picks up that magnetic field and that's what's being detected, the little magnetic field that it's generated. And so scientists turned the spacecraft Galileo basically into a metal detector. They said, okay, if Jupiter's doing this to Europa, if Jupiter is inducing a magnetic field in Europa, let's just look for keys in its pocket. And it, when, it, when, it, when it detected that, 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 that the, the appropriate signal, they realized one, either Europa's made of copper, which it's not, I mean, it's, physically that would be impossible or there's a liquid saltwater ocean down there, which was monumental. Um, it was transformative in how we understand the formation of the solar system, how we understand the Jovian system. And since then, scientists have looked across the, across the solar system and realized there are oceans everywhere. They're subsurface. So for example, Antarctica, Western Antarctica is not like continent all the way down to the, to the core of the earth. It basically, Western Antarctica sits on top of the water right? It's like three miles thick of ice, but beneath that is ocean. Um, and, and the rest of the solar system works in much the same way. A lot of times it's rock. It's not just pristine ice like in Antarctica, but um, we're finding oceans everywhere. And what does that mean? Where there's water, again, there is the possibility the for life. Of, yes. Which, which when, when, I, when, you know, when we were young, the, the habitable zone in the solar system was Earth and maybe Mars and maybe Venus, and then it became, well, maybe now Jupiter. And now because we keep finding these ocean worlds, the, the habitable zone of the solar system is literally the entire solar system. Life could be everywhere and we just have to go look for it. Interesting, interesting. So now let's talk about Mar Mars. Uh, what do you know about in terms of what uh, our, our, our country wants to find out and how are they going to do it? Uh, uh, are they really saying, yes, there, there should be organisms there uh, on Mars? Uh, there, is, there is some water there. Uh, can you give us, a, give us a, an ov of, of, of what you think or what you have read and, or talked with people about in terms of Mars? Of course. Um, so first of all, I'll say that we live in like the most exciting and also the most disappointing time in human history. What I mean by uh, exciting is we can actually, we're going to, you know, tomorrow we're going to land a one ton nuclear powered car on Mars. What could be more exciting than that? It's, we also live in a disappointing time because as late as the mid 1970s, the idea was probably there would be life on Mars, like things scurrying around, not microbes from 3 billion years ago, but animals and, and tumbleweeds and, and, you know, shrubbery and trees and whatever. Um, and, and so that Mars has been taken from us, right? So there's the, there, there are no, there's no, there are no snakes or animals slithering around there that we're aware of. What scientists are attempting with, with the Perseverance Rover um, are, are, are two things. First of all, NASA has been, doing a, a, a Mars exploration campaign really since 
since there was a since there was a NASA. Frankly, I mean, Mars has always been a major stated goal of uh, of the American space program. Simply, be, first of all, it has an important part in our culture, but also because it it is the only planet in the solar system where astronauts can and undoubtedly will one day walk. Astronauts aren't going to Venus because it's 900 degrees on the surface. Um, they're not going to Jupiter because they would be crushed to death by the uh, by the atmospheric pressure. But Mars, we could one day work and walk and live. So each of the robots that we send there is 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 like is making Mars a more real planet. Each thing gives us a little better understanding of how Mars works, how it exists as a planet, what its habitability would have been like a long time ago, what its habitability is like today, what could it what life forms could it sustain today? What could it have had in the past? Where did its ocean go because they now know it had an ocean? And so on and so forth. Um, the Perseverance rover is a very cool and very unique um, mission in the history of space exploration because it's a sample return mission. So in addition to being like the Curiosity rover where it's going to roll around and fire its laser at things and study composition and things that most people, including me, don't really fully understand, um, it's also it's also has a sample collection device. So it's literally going to scoop up dirt from Mars, shove it in a bottle, tighten it up, and wait for a future spacecraft that's in development right now that's going to go down, collect those sample collection canisters, and then fire them back to Earth. In practice, what that means is we can take we will soon have within our, you know, within the next few years, actual bottles of Martian soil, pristine as the day that, well, as pristine as the day that the robot landed that scientists can put under a microscope here, look at an in infinite detail forever, um, look for evidence of microbes that exist today, evidence of microbes that once upon a time existed. They'll be able to understand uh, the, the sort of the water history of Mars, the mineral min mineralogy of, of the soil. Um, everything you need to know about this world, or at least Jezero Crater, which again, because it used to have um, a lake there, um, you're going to get a nice history of, of sort of the water, you know, the water history of Mars and character. I wanted to ask you, uh, to, to interrupt you, at, at any point will, will the, uh, the Mars uh, rover be able to communicate with the United States and how will they do it? And let's say, uh, will be, for them to say them, meaning the, the, the machines within, mm -hmm. uh, yes, we are now collecting uh, uh you know, a, a pound of, uh, let's of say, dirt or a pound of, pound of, uh, will, will there be any kind of communication between uh, the rover and the people on Earth at that, at that point, at point? Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, the, the rovers are going to be in, in constant communication with Earth every step of the way. So every day, a day on Mars is called a SOL, S-O-L. Um, so every SOL, it's going to, here on Earth, uh, engineers are going to scientists and engineers are basically going to make out the plan for the next day. So tomorrow, we want this rover to drive, you know, 100 100 meters, 100 feet, or whatever. We want it to look at this rock here in the distance that we identified from orbit or we identified from from previous photographs. Point a laser at it, figure out its composition or whatever, and then send that data back. So every day, 
We're going to send them information, send the rover information. It's going to do what we tell it to do. And it's going to send back the data that it's collected. And it's also going to send back telemetry. It's going to say, oh, by the way, my systems are great. My engine's running fine. You know, the headlights are great. This, there's water in the, the windshield wiper fluid. Everything's good. Um, um, so, so it's constant communication. The way we talk to the Mars rovers is through a, a, a system called the Deep Space Network. These are these enormous, like, 20-story dishes uh, at different points on the Earth. Just, I mean, they're extraordinary to see. It's, it's. If you saw the movie Contact, I think that, I think um, they were very well represented there. But these these giant dishes are constantly pointing at different sol- different spacecraft in the solar system, and and at a certain point during the day, it'll talk to Mars, send it and in, send information to its different spacecraft, and receive that information in kind. So yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's God, I mean, that, it, it's truly amazing. Now, uh, what if something? wrong would happen uh would we be able here on earth to help the rover fix itself can we do Uh, that too definitely that's and that's that's one thing that makes nasa and jet propulsion laboratory which is the the the, um the place that built this particular mars rover that's sort of what makes them amazing there's a saying in space exploration that that power is king no matter what happens to a spacecraft, no matter how far away it is, as long as it still has power, we can fix it. I mean, you can heat up different capacitors to warm different things up. You do, you're essentially doing metallurgy from you know hundreds of millions of miles. You can um, you can reprogram the computer entirely the same way you would upgrade you know your your Mac OS or your Windows operating system. You could totally rewrite the hard drive on these rovers. Um, over over the years, of course, these different spacecraft do deteriorate. I mean, Mars is a harsh environment. So like the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, which were designed to last 90 days, but ended up lasting something like 15 years, over time, their ca- capacity does decay. Eventually, their wheels stop turning, for example, or whatever. And when that happens, these engineers, it's almost like Apollo 13, where they just say, well, what can we do with what we have there? And uh, they find a way around it. So, um, so yeah, when things go wrong, that that's not a that's not a limiting factor. Um, there, there's an amazing history of of rescuing doomed missions um, from certain death simply by ingenuity of uh, engineers. How extraordinary! Now, why aren't we looking looking possibly colonizing the moon versus Mars? I mean, the moon is much closer. Uh, obviously, it looks like it doesn't have any water or anything like that, but but it is close to us. Are our scientists not particularly interested in in the moon? So that that's a that's a really good question, and th- there are a couple ways to answer it. And and I'll 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 start by saying that NASA does have a program in the works called the Artemis program, and what Artemis is interested in doing is sending astronauts to the moon and eventually learning lessons there to send it to Mars. Um, the idea being the moon is three days away. Mars is, you know, nine months away. Um, if something goes wrong on the moon, we could solve it fairly quickly. Whereas on Mars, it might be a little more difficult. There's another school of thought that says, look, the, 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 the texture of the lunar surface—that's that that the, the the regolith that's called the grains of sand 
on its surface, it's jagged like crunched glass. Okay. So it rips through your astronaut suits. So the surface is very different from Mars, which is fine and powdery. Um, there's no air on the moon, right? It's so things, anything that, you know, wind, air, the elements that would be therein, that doesn't exist. Um, in terms of resources, the moon simply doesn't have the sort of resources that you would have on a full-fledged planet like Mars. Mars has horizons with sunrises and sunsets. It has wind. It has, it has air. It has, um, it, it, it has a horizon that we can appreciate and understand. Psychologically, we're far better equipped to survive on Mars than we are on the moon. Um, my personal belief is that we should go ahead and bypass the moon because it's not necessary for the colonization of Mars. Um, all the lessons that you would learn on the moon, you would have to relearn on Mars. And my feeling is if you have to relearn it anyway, why not just do it at the-, the, the Go straight the away, go straight away. Right, you know, right. I, because there are I resources imagine, there to survive, right. I have this idea, you know, I, I used to listen, watch Star Trek and I remember oh, yeah. they would put up the big ships uh, uh, and, you know, and, you know, it, it go into orbit or, uh, around a planet. Uh, I forget the name of the planet uh, that they used. But do you think that will happen at some point? We'll, we'll build these planetary starships that will um, go around or, or are they too massive to construct here on earth and, and then lift into a, an orbit? That's a really cool question. And we get into some really neat areas there because if, you know, one, I, I believe, and, and there's no reason not to believe this, that yes, that will one day happen. The cool part is we wouldn't build those spacecraft on earth because Anything you build on Earth, you've got to launch into space, and that's really hard. Like, it's hard to beat gravity. It's very hard to, it's very expensive to overcome Earth's gravity and lift things into space. But basically, all of the elements that exist on Earth that you would use to build a spacecraft and fuel it exists on the moon, exists on Mars, exists on Mars's moons, and so on and so forth. So those spacecraft will eventually be built but they're just gonna be built on other worlds because on those worlds, you don't have to overcome the massive gravity of earth. You just uh, lift them uh, they'd away. Be they would be light as a feather, so to speak. It would be like pushing a, 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 pushing a, a, a rowboat off, the, off a pier, like they would just drift away. <laughs> yes, it, it, so, so, we, we, so, and all of these things are doable as a matter of engineering. The infrastructure needs to be built, right? The ability to do these things has not yet been completed, but but that's that's a that's a technical detail. That's something that Elon Musk wants to do. For example, he wants to build the infrastructure to do that. SpaceX isn't interested in building a city on on Mars. It's interested in building launch pads. We can land there. We can take off from there. Once you can do that, you can do anything. Yeah, I, I know Elon Musk said something a couple of weeks ago that you know, in, in a number of years, he's going to be sending people to, to to Mars. And someone asked him, "Well, what are they going to do?" And he says, "Oh, there'll be plenty of work for them there." Oh yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> it could be a great opportunity for people. Uh, you know, he has a, he has uh, a... go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, oh, I was just gonna say he had, oh. go ahead. You go ahead. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to make a little joke. He has this lovely saying that he would love to die on Mars, but not on impact. 
<laughs> no, oh. I think about that often. <laughs> but please, no I'm kidding. sorry for interrupting. Right, no, that's okay. You know, I wish we could go on and on about this, and, and hopefully we can have you on again. And of course, uh, um, you know, I, I want to tell everybody that they should uh, purchase your book. Uh, it, it's really interesting. It's called The Mission. It's, it is a, a big book, but it's filled with, with it, it's so interesting for me because you're talking about people and what they're going, they're going and, and what they want to do and all the obstacles uh, that they encounter. So I highly recommend to our listeners that they either go to Amazon or I'm sure all the big stores uh, already have your book. It's called The Mission. And um, uh, I want to say it gives you all the inside dope on, on space travel, right? <laughs> Something like that. And so, um, uh, David W. Brown, I, I want to thank you for being with us uh, today on High Society with Paxton Quigley. And I hope that uh, we can talk again in a, a number of months. Uh, perhaps there'll be some, some other news that you would, you would like to report on uh, because I enjoy talking with you. You're, you're loads of fun. And I thank this you. Was- This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today, and I'll come back anytime. Okay, that sounds good. And folks, uh, tell your friends that they can listen to this broadcast on our website, which is paxtonquigley.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram and and Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, We're we're a talk show, but we also listen. So feel free to, to get in touch with us. And I'd also like to thank our listeners who purchased my latest suspense book called Just Try Me. It's available on Amazon, either Kindle or paperback. Uh, So please get a copy of that too. And um, listeners, please stay safe. Please wear a double mask. Apparently it's supposed to be important to do that. And if you have to do, if you have to, I should say, stay home. Because if we work together, we can beat this virus and we will be hopefully home free. I'm Paxton Quigley. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Is that Shakespeare? Nope, it's Geico. Uh, Yeah, 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 that's Shakespeare from one of his unpublished works. Oh, it be not for awakening. Nay, give it thou the berries. For 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. No, it's from Geico, because they help save people money. Well, I hate to break it to you, but Geico got it from Shakespeare. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Good afternoon. Would you like to try a free sample of our double fudge brownie? Oh, sure. Mmm, that's very good. I'll just take one more, just to be sure. Yep, still very good. Some things never change. Like never being able to take just one free sample. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Mmm, is that macadamia nut I taste? Let me take one more. Sir, mm. yeah, I thought so. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.